But immortality is always the monotonous immortality of social paradise. The revolution will never rediscover death until it demands it immediately. Its impasse is to be hooked on the end of political economy as a progressive expiry, whereas the demand for the end of political economy is posed right now in the demand for immediate life and death. In any case, death and enjoyment, highly prized and priced, will have to be paid for throughout political economy and will emerge as insoluble problems on the day after the revolution. The revolution only opens the way to the problem of death without the least chance of resolving it. In fact, there is no day after, only days for the administration of things. Death itself demands to be experienced immediately in total blindness and total ambivalence. But is it revolutionary? If political economy is the most rigorous attempt to put an end to death, it is clear that only death can put an end to political economy. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens then is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine Your Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with the discussion today, I just want to let you guys know we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Please send us a book. And today we are coming back to Baudrillard's Symbolic Exchange and Death. We are on Chapter 5, Political Economy and death. Coop, it's nice to be here with you in the flesh. In person. First time ever. First time ever. IRL. We are here in Austin, Texas, and we are enjoying each other's company. And um, this is a long chapter, and um, we we get to hear a lot about death, which supposedly was the main topic of this whole book, but, you know, he's really kind of saved all of his little juicy juicy death nuggets for uh, for this chapter. And um, we've kind of talked about some of the stuff. Do you have any, before we like jump into the text, do you have like any takeaways, any immediate pushbacks or immediate enlightenments um, from reading this? The thing that stood out to me most from this reading, I guess in concretizing, crystallizing the, the division between life and death example that Baudrillard uses of the cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. I think is the kind of the, maybe a key metaphor or way to understand how the dead are sort of excluded from our, our world. It's a material example you can witness within a city or a region or, or what have you in the way that in Europe and sort of the medieval era, right? The city cemeteries were or town cemeteries were typically located within sort of the nexus of the of the heart of the city mm. right but as we move into modernity this becomes less and less desirable due to the i guess the, the economic value and potentiality the surplus value that is 
capable of being extracted from that particular territory, let's say. I know that we could look at the text, but it is interesting to think about the fact that it does make sense, at least in in societies we've lived in, that, I mean, I'm thinking of like Milledgeville, where I grew up, there's downtown, and then on the outskirts of downtown, sort of towards the, the borderline of the town, that's where the biggest cemetery is. Kind of adjacent to a big church, but it's not in the middle of downtown, it's not in the middle of of the town itself it really is kind of in an awkward place that's that's out away and there may be some smaller much much smaller little can't even really call them cemeteries little graveyards but for the most part those are uh, those are rare and so that this is interesting as a way of thinking of the delimitation of space the production of space and how now when you map out blueprint you know towns you're right. the The cemetery is not the focal point. the The graveyard is is not the focal board. It's on the outskirts. And this, the thing that I think about relating it to another text is in a thousand plateaus and on the refrain. The first example they give is a child is walking past the graveyard at night, and in order to stave off some anxiety, right uh, about like you know, whether it be haunted ghosts or just the anxiety of, of the death that, that he's he's near, he starts to hum, whistle a little tune, and it helps to organize the chaos that surrounds him. And I think that kind of Baudrillard is trying to, he, he's seizing upon something like this, right? That the, the, at least in our culture, in our Western culture, in modernity or post-modernity, we have this anxiety about death. And... We're going to leave aside Heidegger because he investigates this question of being towards death and anxiety and all that. Baudrillard is doing something totally different, you know, and he's he's concerned with how we are trying to excise and exclude death from not only our perception, but our minds, right? Repress it and sort of, you know, wash our hands of it and 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 completely cordon it off in a way that, that anesthetizes it and makes it, renders it like, sanitized to a certain extent right certainly in comparison to the pre-capitalist societies where the relations to death were not so there was not this division there was not kind of you talked about this in the language of like the caesarean bar like death slides under the bar Mm -hmm. now for the for the primitives as baudrillard refers to them it's like the ancestors and the dead the dead ancestors I was talking about how this sort of aligns with inscription and uh, and writing being kind of like the way that Deleuze and Guattari articulate that. That's what comes first in, in opposition to, I think, what Baudrillard's focus has been through most is this idea that exchange is principle. Mm-hmm. But to me, for there's a nice little tie-in here because of the way that this exclusion of the of the dead, even like I said, like I gave that great example of this physical space and way that that's carried out through the machinery of, of capital in, in the city, let's say. I guess you should back up. I guess that doesn't really sort of dovetail into, but into this notion, but. You're anticipating that. <laughs> you're, 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 you're thinking ahead yeah. to where we might end up, but go on. What I was thinking immediately is that the I've had this idea for several episodes about how 
is there a necessity within society, within a, a social group, an associates, whatever you, however you want to articulate mm -hmm. the social group, that there has to be an excluded other, mm -hmm. right? That is sort of either binds together the society in a way, like it gives you a focus of negativity or a way yep. to displace your own, I guess, negative feelings, or I don't know what you call that exactly in a psychoanalytic sense. I mean, you've talked about it in terms of the scapegoat right. before. But in terms of like, what are they? So the scapegoat in this example would be, you know, you articulated that the dead here are like the ultimate, the scapegoat par excellence right. in our society currently. Yeah, I mean, the way I was trying to think about this, because you have gotten me for a few episodes now, you know, thinking about the scapegoat, uh, thinking about you know, inside groups and outside groups and, and the way in which inside groups, you know, um, even though those terms are kind of general and vague, but the way in which they're there, as you said, there's a constitutive exclusion, right? There is a, it's kind of like the way we talked about uh, with, with Leon Brenner, this notion of, of the drive, the notion of, of this, uh, well, really of the, the creation of the unconscious, through an ex through a constitutive exclusion, right through um, symbolic negativity, you know we can leave that out here because that's not quite relevant. But this question of scapegoat and the question of perhaps modernity—I don't want to equate it with capitalism because Baudrillard doesn't quite say this, but he he makes it about our culture and modernity. He seems to imply that part of the rise of Capitalism is, is, I'm not going to use that word, it's contemporaneous with this move of more intensely excluding death and sliding it under the bar as that which is, is repressed. And the way that I kind of think about it is, well, he starts the chapter with a great quote from Foucault, which I'll just paraphrase here, but it's basically this He's basically paraphrasing one of Foucault's earliest works, which is about the way in which the madman was dealt with, right? In the sort of the mid to late Middle Ages, this, this notion of excluding the madman. You know, I mean, Foucault obviously uses that great image of the ship of fools. You send off the insane and the mentally disabled or whatever on the ship and perhaps they land on another shore and it's someone else's problem, right? That's, that's kind of like the homeless now. Right? Yeah. The, they're the sort of, it's, that's a really stark example of seeing, is it too banal to say that these individuals, these groups don't produce surplus value. So mm -hmm. that's why they're sort of repressed and pushed out. We talked about this last night, you know, when I, when I mentioned that, um, you know, near your house, there was the, there's the guy with the, the wheelchair that lives under that, that underpass, right. Or lives under the overpass. Right. And, and we started discussing this notion of the unhoused. And of course, yeah, I mean, there's, there is this thing where on the one hand, we know that there is a simple solution for housing people. There are enough houses in America right. that social programs could be set up to actually make use of those houses. But on the other hand, those houses are not meant to be, they are meant to produce this surplus value right. that why they are sitting empty and why even more homes are being built you know we can talk about it in terms of a housing bubble we've seen that over the past few years we've seen the the price of real estate and housing uh rise so there is something here to it where 
in capitalist societies, it seems like whether it be the madman, which obviously relates to our other series on anti-Oedipus and the question of the schizophrenic and schizophrenia in capitalism, or the unhoused, or the disabled, or the sick, right? Even just the... Right. Even because that's kind of what Baudrillard gets to is even the, the sick person is excluded and and is not able to enter into, even on a micro level, a collective exchange in which that their illness can be exercised. Like in the, well, I guess you say in both senses, but really I'm thinking of the sense of warding off and in the sense of exercising a demon, that the disease can be mediated through a collective, through a group, and allow it to take on a symbolic exchange. Kind of like we uh, we discussed. We've we kept, so that's the Ndembu doctor. Yeah, we keep bringing it up. But chapter like, three, right? The schizoanalysis in act. It looks like the practice of the Ndembu doctor, which is looked at by Turner. You know, where where all of all all of the the whole social group is involved in the curing of an individual. It's not something that one is kind of uh, kind of goes through by oneself. You know, and that I think the implications of of excluding death and 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 then excluding all these other images of death of perhaps death delayed, which would be sickness, which would be the unhoused or penury, as he calls it, right? Like the state of being poor, and you could go on at infinitum. All these different images of death have to be repressed maybe in different layers and different levels kind of like the layers of simulacra that he develops and i'll throw it back to you but the the one thing that lucretius talks about that this this reminds me of this reminds me very strongly of lucretia and i didn't think of it until now but it's this notion that the fear of death is because we fear that after we are dead we will be in a state in which we are deprived of some joy, of some happiness, and of, of some wealth of, of some kind, right? We think of ourselves as, as poor, lost souls after death. And what Lucretius tries to say as a materialist, he's like, look, he's like, one can but die, one cannot be dead. Now, maybe Lucretius is making Baudrillard's point that we don't you know, respect our ancestors, our dead ancestors, but Lucretius is trying to dissolve a false problem where we imagine we project this fear into the afterlife where we will be like shades wandering hell and we'll be deprived of all the sunlight and joy and all these things, all the positivities that we think of life being uh, imbued with. And Lucretius is like, you don't experience being dead. Like when you die, it's over. So don't be afraid. Spinoza tries to take this up too, right? That the, the free man thinks least upon death. And I just wonder if if these are, I don't know if they're counter arguments to what Baudrillard's going into, but they're, they're kind of context. I guess I could read, there's a section from the very first paragraph that goes to this exclusion. Mm -hmm. The little subtitle of the section is the extradition of the dead. This is because the human is from the outset the institution of its structural double, the inhuman. This is all it is. The progress of humanity and culture are simply the chain of discriminations with which to brand others with inhumanity and therefore with nullity. For the savages who call themselves men, 
the others are something else. So this is where I was getting that notion or, you know, bringing up the idea, the touchstone that I've had relative to this idea of the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And then you brilliantly came in with the idea, okay, the dead are like the, the ultimate form of scapegoat. Right. Right. Just off the top of my head, you know, I, I, I agree more with, even if Baudrillard pulls upon Freud to show through Freud, perhaps the unconscious is our myth, our modern myth. I still believe that, you know, I still dream of, of dead relatives. They still, they still speak to me in my dreams. I don't discount that. I feel that is very real and very lived, especially since when I dream, I, the majority of the time when I dream vividly, they are lucid dreams. And in the dreams, I, I confront my dead beloved mother, grandmother, father, and say like, how can you be here? You're dead. And they're like, too bad. I'm, I'm here. Deal with it. The unconscious, as Freud always said, doesn't understand negation, doesn't understand death. And I know Baudrillard tries to play with this in a way that, you know, he wants to kind of say that this is our own way of repressing death. But at the same time, like, I'm not a very religious person. I never, you know, insofar as I consider myself atheistic, I think in my dreams when I when I see my, my dead relatives and I speak to them and it actually comforts me that they say they are present with me and I enjoy that time with them, I feel like that's my way of honoring my dead. So I wonder if, because if, that's not even part of the equation for Baudrillard is about like honoring the dead anymore. He almost seems like it's a foregone conclusion that, that that's only a, like a false movement for us, right? You know, because contrast to ancestor worship, perhaps, I think, for him, he might be. He might say to me, "Well, well, that's your own individual way of dealing with, with uh, you know, family members that are dead. So that's your isolated plot." Where I, he's really trying to say it needs to be a collective movement. It can't just be you dealing with your right. Yeah, yeah. So I right. gave my it has to be a group yeah. sort of in a very kind of Quaterian way. Not to speak for Baudrillard, but I'm I'm trying to like play off myself and, and yeah and. You know, because I'm not, I'm not like arguing that he's, right. he's wrong. I'm just, this is the struggles that, that I, I had reading, reading the text. Interestingly, now that you bring that up, I don't think I've ever, I don't recall ever dreaming about a dead relative mm -hmm. ever, like mm -hmm. in my life. I can't, yeah. I'm trying to think, I, I don't feel like that I can remember ever. Like dreaming. a grandparent? Do you have I, a... I don't think I've ever dreamt of someone that I know that has passed away. Okay. But uh, granted, I've not known that many yeah. people honestly that have died so perhaps that's why yeah i mean it's you know but back to the i guess on the collective level i mean one of the things that as a sociologist that i i wondered what he would say about would be like el dia del muerto right, right. the day of the dead that because he does later yeah, now that's a collective celebration yes. that yes. is akin to the kind of way that guatari sort of or deleuze and guatari talk about the Indembu doctor, right? Mm -hmm. The sort of group schizoanalysis. Yeah. So there is a sort of, you know, we talked about in our last Anti-Oedipus episode that capitalism doesn't re or the territorial machine, the despotic machine doesn't, it doesn't overrule everything. It allows some things. Relative autonomy. Right, right. Uh, some latent so, yeah, primitive codes. It's like, yeah. it's not a universalizing force where everything is, it's distributed. There's different intensities. Yeah. Right. 
So I think that would probably just fall on us bringing in the notion of territory, right? There's right. going to be some certain differences that are going to show up. It's interesting to think about because on the one hand, I could see Boger is saying like, okay, that's a good counterexample. And on the other hand, he could say, but like, look at how, let's just say in the past century, the Day of the Dead, Halloween, whatever becomes another mode of selling products of right. selling the sugar skulls right that we saw true, uh, true. yesterday when we went out yeah, kind of yeah. shopping which adorned the the front of our book or yeah. the all the different costumes right. but you know i mean it's i mean halloween is its own ritual which has kind of been very much distance from death. It's different than all right. all Souls Day or or Sam, whatnot. Sam Han. Yeah, I don't even know how to pronounce. <laughs> Sam Wayne. I don't know. Some, somebody yeah. somebody laugh at us. And then the Day of the Dead. Yeah, you know, there's a commodification of that to a certain extent, but still, there's a way in which that it is like a collective celebration. You know, you can mock it for it being tapped into by capitalist markets. But, uh, you know, I mean, at the same time there, I know that later in his writings, he does become interested in Carnival and yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about how they leave the gifts, right? They'll have mm -hmm. the shrines to mm -hmm. the relative and they'll, they'll leave out cookies or different foods and, yeah. and things like that. So is that not a type of symbolic exchange with I think the so. dead, right? So I do think so. It's still sort of preserved in that way, in, in a sense, at least. It may not resurrect or fully enact symbolic exchange in the way that Baudrillard relays it, because for him, it for him, it has to be this this death that can't be reappropriated by political economy. Oh, okay. And I wonder if he's he would still kind of mock us for for trying to find these counterexamples, but I do think they're they're important to to put to the foreground, very you know, at the start to say that hey, you know that. And I'm very certain that there are other examples we could draw upon, but but those two being some of the most popular. Yeah, that's probably the best one I can think of. Yeah, but 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 you're right. This the leaving of gifts. I mean, we we do leave, you know, like roses on graves. But I think your example is better because mine is individual, like my dreams. Right. Whereas you're talking about a more broad cultural practice. Yeah. Thing. And, and it's not necessarily to anyone, even if when you leave that gift, you may be thinking of someone you've lost, right. you're still leaving it for the general kind of collective loss. And I was talking to you about something earlier where Claster points out that when the chief who doesn't command, who doesn't coerce, who only kind of negotiates and mediates right. between conflicting parties, when he gives his daily speeches, he more or less hits some certain tropes. And one of them is our ancestors flourished they taught us the correct way of living. Their values should be our values. We should honor them by reproducing what they did. I mean, in that sense, that kind of ancestor worship, while it keeps a kind of stability and equilibrium to the tribe, I mean, we can't really go back to that. Right. I mean, you, I, our listeners, we can't try to recreate that you know, out of nothing, we can take that as an example of a way of honoring those who came before us. But at the same time, there's a way in which that does produce a kind of cultural inertia, for better or worse, that we can't really recapture without the most radical kind of Ludditism, right? Without, you know, complete, like going off the grid, for example, right? And, and even then, that's an individual endeavor, unless you, you, you know, you pursued a kind of uh, create 
like in the 19th century, they try to create the, these like utopian movements that would be self-sustaining and whatnot. But there, to even undertake such a task, have to cut ties with the ways of the past. Right. So I wonder about this perhaps undercurrent of reactionary politics when Baudrillard is focusing so hard on this notion of excluding death. You know, he doesn't seem like a reactionary, but and yet we've read, you know, for his friends like Leotard who have kind of called him out and taken him to task for just that very thing. And even more or less calling out his racism and his ethnocentrism, which is, you know, something we've already discussed. But but I guess that would be my thing where it's like, he says there's no nostalgia, as we've always said, but it's, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm still not sure if I'm convinced. I still, I still feel like he's getting me close to climaxing, but it's, 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 he still feels like he's, he's been buttering me up, you know? Right. Yeah. I wanted to go back to mentioning, you know, I was kind of trying to articulate this a bit earlier with, you know, opening the episode, discussing the marking of the body. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I was telling you the idea that I had that this is the inscribing of the body, the writing on the body, marking, etc. The system of cruelty is a way to show or a way to take on debt, visit the body as ledger. Yes. And the debt being to the ancestors, to those that, and the tribe. Yeah. Who, which Simultaneous for Baudrillard would be, there would, for them, there's no distinction between right. the living and the dead the way that we have. It's ambivalent that. in right, a sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that is a super interesting thing and kind of connects with the day of the dead and the way that yeah. food and gifts are left. There's a certain potlatch mm -hmm. there because of, except there's no reciprocity exactly. Well, unless you're mm. willing to go forth and say that it's fully a, there's a symbolic exchange. I think there is in the some way, in the way that there is in mm. the sense of the, of the pre-capitalists or primitives or whatever, however you want to articulate that group. There is some markings of the body. I mean, a lot of people, they even paint the kind of temporary tattoos of, of the skeleton. They dress up as, as skeletons, right? Yeah. That may not be the same as undergoing initiation with, as you said, the cruelty with the marking, with the, you know, with the stone cutting the body. But there's a sense in which through imitation, through kind of mimesis, through a kind of role play, one is taking on the finitude that we ourselves right. will yeah, die. Yeah. And I think that that it may be minimal or it may be, you can call it cosplay, you can call it, you know, um, just dressing up to go have fun and as an excuse to like celebrate and feast. But isn't that part of, isn't that really one of the mainstays of primitive society is, is having an excuse to celebrate and to feast and to, and also to give back. I mean, I was also thinking about, um, you know, when we watched with your roommate for the first time, Nick, when we watched boys in the hood for the first time one of the last scenes we see at the end when he's pouring out the rest of his 40 he's honoring his dead brother you know i mean like there right. are we still have some some remnants right. of these things that that have become a part of you know yeah. different activities but i think you know baudrillard wants it to be thoroughgoing you know not just through even right. one cultural he practice wants it to be or, the dominant yes cultural form of exchange and instead of commodity or whatever yeah. use what is it law of value yeah the destroying the, the law the of value. structural law of value structural law yeah of value, right. i think that if i think that Baudrillard's intuition is that if it could be if it could cut through all 
societies. I'm not even talking about globalism or whatever, but I'm just talking about if it could cut through not just our individual psyches, but could infiltrate our social engagements, then somehow political economy and therefore capitalism itself would be challenged and would not be able to reciprocate. This is why he suggests that our immediate violent death or even our dream, even, even the dream of our immediate violent death is this unbearable threat to the system. Yes. And, you know, we've been saying counterexamples, but I think Baudrillard, he hasn't yet said it yet, but he's like, I think he's, he's kind of implied that, that that's his goal. And so, it's sort of in the master slave dialectic. I mean, mm. it kind of has a logic in terms of the immediate death. It's this trading. It's the exchange of my immediate death or wagering my, my or immediate death. Yeah. Basically getting installments, death and install on the installment plan. Right. Through through capital or the structural law of value. Right. So the only way to break that master slave relation is to that's that's why that's the threat. I, that's kind of how I'm reading. I'm not ad, necessarily well. He has a he has advocating a, this. Doesn't he have a part in in this section where he basically says if the master slave dialectic has not ended with one of the contestants dying, then it hasn't really finished. It hasn't really gone to the next stage. It hasn't reached that alpha bung. We don't necessarily have to look that up, but I, I guess my other point being, you know, the mild version of Hegel is that the master and the slave struggle over recognition. Right. But the stakes really are death. Yeah. That, that the mass the slave becoming the master by killing the master or themselves. Right. I mean, I think that that's kind of Baudrillard's point is who is it this is? I think it's Lacan who kind of says this where this is on Kamasad where it's, you know, you are you're mugged or you're, you're held up and it's like, you know, your freedom or your life. So. You, yeah. And that's so security is yeah. what security he, is where he goes to. With yeah. This. this is kind of what he's thinking of with your, which makes sense because of the, ma the master is giving security. Yes. Right? And that's he's doling out little bits of life, little bits of life on mm -hmm. the installment plan. Okay. Right. Yeah. Which, okay. So that's the symbolic debt that. Yes. That becomes on. infinite. Right. Yeah through capitalism and through the virtualization of marking yeah. that was previously in my example used to the body was the ledger. Yep. Now the writing system has superseded the body. It's become code. Right. Okay. In Beaujard's sense, right? It's yeah. become it's become the omnipotence of the code, you know, and, and of the binary code, I guess. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean it it can be binary. Well I was just thinking here life death is sort of a binary as long as it's it's if, as long as binary isn't isn't ambivalent, right? The plus minus it has to be discrete and equivalent in order for it to be that which is that which Baudrillard is decrying and, and fighting against. But yes, I I think that this notion that your freedom or your life, you give up your freedom and you've given up your livelihood, but you preserve your life. If you refuse to give your freedom, you've lost both. Right. right. That's kind of the double bind. Yeah. You know, if you refuse to, to, if, if to you're become a, the slave. Yeah. If you're, yeah. A, if you feared your own death, then you have become, so you, you've given up the value of life, but you, right. but you preserved life. You've enslaved yourself to death mm -hmm. in that sense. Yeah. And, and in that first chapter, he, 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 which I think he actually says something to that effect. Yeah. In that first chapter, he kind of provocatively says that, 
you know, it's not that it's not that by being exploited, the workers are being doled out little bits of death. Like you said, the death and installment plan, it's actually he, he reverses it provocatively and says, like, we are given little bits of life at a time. And maybe I'm actually I won't, I won't continue here, but Baudrillard, whichever way it is, Baudrillard says, as opposed to my slow death or my death by like a thousand pinpricks, I, I will offer my immediate violent death. And that's that's the thing that the system, at least insofar as we follow his kind of his genealogy uh, of death and death drive, that's what the system would would not be able to recuperate. At least it's kind of, but it's also not just my individual immediate death. It's kind of, you know, if we all break the law, you know, they can't get us. If we all fucking, it's, it is kind of heaven's gate shit, right? It's like, if we all just fucking- Heaven's gate ourselves. Yeah, (laughs) if if we all just fucking jump off the cliff like lemmings, you know, the the system will be, it'll be a shock to the system. It's interesting in this way, kind of in the context of covid right the people that aren't vaccinating yeah so okay ah now here's the interesting connection to that okay so baudrillard does bring up this fact or this little nugget about the workers in the factories who would perhaps actually remove some safety precautions that's right just to have a measure of control over their own this is good lives this is good yeah and I, so that same logic is kind of probably you could argue that it's that very same logic clearly equivalent. Yeah, it's sort of perhaps that's the equivalency with the anti-vax and specific to COVID. I think there's maybe a different system going on or phenomenon well, going on a, with the uh, you know with the traditional anti-vax yeah people. Well, the the anti-vax people have been gaining steam well before COVID. We heard about some of this shit. I mean, there are some famous examples i won't name them all but i think of like pamela anderson right i'm not pamela anderson. i'm sorry pamela i meant um jenny mccarthy jenny mccarthy thank you there was this notion that her kid became autistic due to the normal round of vaccines that yeah. we get as children before right. we are allowed to attend school and she's not the start of that it's right. probably always been a kind of trend especially yeah. in and surprisingly more in like left liberal, liberal right, yeah, yeah liberal right. more natural whole foods natural medicine kind of shit yeah the QAnon take on right yeah this is a that's a, that, I think there's a different whole they resonate they resonate the interest the Venn diagram is is interestingly incestual but right but yeah I it, think it is a distinct yes even, I don't know psychoanalytic or whatever phenomenon is but they correct. do resonate right and your good point here is about how this notion about uh i mean it's kind of like hold me tight and spit on it's kind of like hold me tight and spit on totally think of the same thing i mean when leotard is talking about the 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 workers enjoying the little bits of death that they would take on i mean bojir it's kind of saying something but it's on the context of security where they're resisting these regulatory practices that are supposed to protect them because it is top down it's a hierarchical imposition right and just to take a slight detour this is why guattari's notion of the grid as we discussed with gary janosko is so important because what guattari was trying to kind of formulate was this way in which 
you know, collectively subjects could be could be in communication in a way that wouldn't necessarily be a, a an order given and a command received, right? right. That, that could be a way of negotiating freedom without the without the Hegelian fucking top down binary, right? Yeah, that we yeah. just discussed of master slave. And that kind of goes to the way that the chief functions in those societies yes. as well, right? Yes, the chief is not giving orders. It's a it's what but class- it's like from a I don't know, you would call it maybe like systems theory or information theory uh-huh. or whatever. It's like if you're just trying to model organizational movement of, of anything, yeah. right? It doesn't make sense. The problem is with this whole hierarchical system is information doesn't isn't able to get to the top. This is what you discussed. It's, the flows the are blocked. Yeah. Like it's blocking the flows. Yeah, I was talking about this yesterday. The chain of command. There's like little yeah. gaps. It almost would be like a Lacanian reading. You know what I mean? Because there's little mm-hmm. bits of signification that are either lost or bottled up. You could maybe yeah. do a, yeah. dual, a different analysis. You could say on one side, if you're looking at it from a Lacanian lens, like these gaps in the of information flowing upwards or whatever are just by the time they're reaching their destination, they're they're redundant or they're or they're useless or right. Yeah. Now from the sort of Deleuze and Guattari perspective i think it's more the flows of information are bottled Mm -hmm. they're blocked they're Mm -hmm. cut off by the tree structure by the hierarchy right yeah Yeah. it's all kind of sort of like a traffic jam almost yeah yeah exactly just even like infrastructurally it's not gonna work right i mean this is why because of the way that information flows or right these things kind of reciprocate this is a good way to think about why they reject trees in the in a thousand plateaus in that first plateau on the rhizome it's not necessarily about an abstract ontological question you are trying to articulate this in the model of of the flow of information right right and which involves entropy and neg entropy and all this stuff which bojard himself relates to in the book when they talk about rhizome and they give all of these different ways of elaborating it and they talk about you know one point is connecting any other point and must be and it's not necessarily in in these chains they give this example which they take from mathematicians of an army without a general an army without a leader where it is this interesting way in which you know the as kool-aid was kind of saying there are provisional leaders for provisional problems. Yeah. And it's not necessarily about one person approving. There's not a bureaucracy checking off boxes where it is. Some people are suited to a certain tasks and the group probably, if it's intimate enough, if it's able to be 100% real with itself, is able to say like, well, you know, X is, is, is better at hunting. Y is better at gathering z is better at building you know etc this is kind of how rousseau idealistically i say idealistically he he imagines the birth of consciousness where before consciousness kind of like in 2001 space odyssey we're all kind of you know gorillas we're all kind of simians sitting around the fire and we're we're sitting around the fountain around the fire and we're all singing in the night and there's this one moment bam where we all look at each other and we recognize these differences where somebody's singing better over here somebody looks more imposing over there and this is where kind of consciousness begins to sediment inequalities now i don't know if i buy that that myth that's kind of a story we tell right but i think that part of what baudrillard is 
even saying here is when he talks about the unconscious or the drives as myth, and he quotes Freud saying, like, the drives are a myth, there are mythologies. His problem isn't, okay, they're myths, so we can dismiss them. His problem is, okay, what if we, the problem with psychoanalysis for Baudrillard seems to be, Freud knew these were myths. He said so in public lectures. And yet, psychoanalysis represses that fact and stops doing what myths need to be done with, which is to be retold as stories that we tell each other, and they start being taken as objective facts. And I think that's one of the things that Baudrillard is critical of uh, Freud, or if not Freud, uh, of the, the, the history of psychoanalysis, that it stops being a, a myth that we tell and that we use as, as ways of explaining what we can't explain, and it becomes these axioms. When he says, he says something like, when the fables become axioms, this is, this is part of the movement of modernity to this part of the movement of science, which has to use a dead object, but then at the same time, it kind of negates the symbolic reality of, of death. What do you think about, this is kind of going backwards a bit, but I wanted to pose a couple of ideas relative to, I guess, Bataille and kind of useless expenditure. Yeah. You know, he does, re he does reference Bataille here in the chapter. So I was thinking about, in terms of potlatch, even within our Western or U.S., the way that we celebrate Halloween, right? Mm -hmm. the, gi the giving of the candy, there's no reciprocal, right? There's a sort of, right? You're giving that away if there is without a the expectation of reciprocity, at least by that right, right. individual. It's more of like yeah. the collective sort of, right? Like if you go trick-or-treat, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost like the... Well, Giyaki, if you and I went trick-or-treating, I don't think we'd get much candy. Right. But. It's almost like the Giyaki hunter yeah. in that way that you don't eat your own... You don't eat your own kill. We don't necessarily give candy to the parents of, of, of True. the... True. It's of only the, the children. So the children get, get a special night. Right. And they get a night of kind of meeting their neighbors, right? I mean, yes, you can shuttle them from community to Which community. Which is a type of symbolic exchange yeah. in itself, too. Yeah, I think that is. And as the adult who has their light on or has, I mean, sometimes you can have the just the little bowl out and say, take what you want. That's right. one way of doing it, where you don't have to see the little shits. <laughs> Um, the other way is, of course, to have your light on, to have your porch light on, make sure that you they know and have have um, your your ornaments up, have your your ghosts and and you decorate and you are kind of welcoming them to to come to your door. And if there is any reciprocity, it is the you get to see them dressed up, you get to see them cosplay. You know, if we can use that right for one night of a year to to be kids, which is what kids do. They they make believe, they imagine. You get to see them getting one of the favorite things as a kid, which is candy. You know, and you're right, there is a kind of symbolic exchange where they get to go around and and what's interesting, it's only in modern, well, I'd have to do some research cuz I could be wrong. With mass media and like CNN and all this shit, there I mean, when I was growing up, there was all these fucking horror stories about, oh, there's there's razor blades. There's the razor candy. blades. There's drugs. Yeah. And the candy. You, I didn't hear as much about drugs. I could be wrong that there may be Well, there they have even, even this year. I feel like the past couple of uh -huh. years, there's been this... Scare? This scare that people were going to be putting... I guess it's because of the proliferation of... I'm not going to waste my drugs on kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't have I mean, my fucking drugs. Those are my drugs. That's what everybody says online, of course. 
But yeah, it seems to in the last couple of years, I guess it's because of the proliferation of gummy, the yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, still, candies. you're not, you're not gonna have my gummy on them. But you're right. The 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 gummies can taste like, but you you wouldn't give a single gummy, right? You you would it would be in a little bag of gummies. It would be like little gummy bears, and I wouldn't waste my drugs on kids. And I right. think that would be kind of a fucked up thing to do. But the whole razor blade myth was what I heard about as a yeah. kid, and I think that that's one way of actually to agree with Bojard, maybe. It's one way of trying to like, that's the security, the hover, the helicopter parent who's hovering around and is, of course, trying to be the good parent and is projecting every possible scenario where their children are potentially victims. And there is this thing where you don't talk to strangers unless you're asking them for candy and it's associated too with this notion of like if a stranger in a van, you know, right. offers strangers you candy, candy right? they're going to fucking abduct you and human traffic you or rape you or whatever the fuck. I get how you can kind of move from a series of metonymies <laughs> to the worst possible scenario. But um, I guess that's part of the modern uh, discourse on security that, I mean, it kind of proves Bojard right. It's kind of sad, but I mean, I never had any of candy i never got yeah high off candy i never had razor blades and candy and you know i mean bite into a razor blade you'll be fine (laughs) you'll heal up put a put a band-aid on your mouth what do you think about this too i was also thinking about this was a kind of problematizing this kind of battalion excess would be like the you know we're talking about the the unhoused yeah and how the properties exist Effectively, the number of vacant homes exceeds the number of homeless people by the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but exponentially. Yet those, right, but yet those homes remain empty. Yeah. So there's a sort of excess yeah. to this. The question would be how many homes are held by the state, how many homes are held by corporations or private ownership, and it would probably be the majority are private. Right, correct. In our society, in America. And... Another thing is a lot of times it's more, it could be more expensive for them to sell or rent out a property than it is to leave it vacant. You have to, are you thinking about use and wear and tear and and just repairs? Or what are you thinking when you say that? It could be more expensive for the owners to rent or sell? Yeah. Than to stay in the bubble and and play the game of kind of like Bitcoin or whatever or any other stock. As a speculative Speculative asset. Okay. Yeah. 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 Perhaps that might be the best way to, I don't know if that's exactly what I was thinking, but I don't know. Just think it was somewhat interesting in the way that, I don't know. It seems too easy to say like there's a, to bring this back around is to my logic in this example of the cemetery and the way mm-hmm. that the cemetery is moved or like where that is placed geographically speaking is okay. The value of this property is too high. There's too much potential for surplus value to be extracted by right. this property. We're no longer going to house our dead because they don't offer us any return on that property, return on our investment. So I guess maybe that is the difference is the property itself can offer a return. And you said- it can offer more return yeah, yeah, than, ha- yeah. than someone occupying- the property now when you said we're no longer going to house our dead did you mean we're no longer going to house our homeless or did you mean that specifically we're no longer going to house our dead well we don't we won't ha- because also real estate for cemeteries and plots and and whatever have also we've seen depending on the area but specifically think about like um 
It is expensive, yeah. Think about like uh, New Orleans with a highly Catholic culture where I don't know if if the Pope has changed this or whatever. I don't mean to speak for Catholics. If we're wrong, send us an email. This notion, if I follow it, that cremation is not standard in Catholic culture. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And if you think about the fact that burial is is mostly impossible in at least certain parts of New Orleans because of the sea level, that real estate above ground, even if it were below ground in other places that are highly densely populated and Catholic, like, you know, Boston, where you're where your roommates from and these other places. But still, even that's super expensive. And yeah. that is highly valued real estate. That's what I was thinking when when Baudrillard, he has like one little quip about cremation and how that proves what he's saying about death. Because honestly, I actually think it works against his argument, which is why he only brings it up momentarily, that cremation, to me, works against his argument because it's precisely the fact that we have stopped fetishizing our bodies as the vessel for which immortality is, yeah. is granted. And I think that totally short circuits. But That's interesting, though, because I do think I did like to go off that point about immortality and mm -hmm. yeah. to, the transition and you had a great point. I don't remember exactly what this was, but it was about Baudrillard discusses the transition and he uses, I think, ancient Egyptians yes. as an example of the way that sort of basically the body without organs or the socius was everything was moving to grant immortality to the group through the symbology of the pharaoh. Yeah. And some of the royalty. Which is kind of like a, right? Wouldn't that be sort of a name of the father to that's exactly right it's, a collective. It, it's, it's the despotic machine with the overcoating of the sovereign of the emperor of the pharaoh and even, is it or it, would it be well but it's not yet it's perhaps promised in the future but in terms of the body being the vessel for which because they really did think your, yes, your, your physical body had to be preserved. Right. They hadn't yet idealized it and, right. and interiorized yeah. it. But insofar as the despotic machine and the and the sovereign or the despot is all the other bodies, all the other people are flowing through him. In a sense, if you preserve yeah. him, you mummify him perfectly. Right. And the body that's of the, the culture. Yeah, the body of the organs thing with the mummified pharaoh is actually literal, right? Because they do take out the, the right. organs. And place them in the canopic jars, yeah. One of which is funny, right? They take out the brain because... Yeah, they threw away the brain. The brain wasn't important for them. But <laughs> yeah, still, yeah. they had good intentions. Right. right. But it's still kind of a, a, it is a weird metaphor. Since we, yeah, we sort of fetishize the brain as yeah. the locus of consciousness right? yeah but no this is all very good and, and you're right i mean like that alone is i mean the implications of that mm -hmm. i think are very interesting so yeah the body of the organs of the sovereign and the mummify but there is a there's a promise that by preserving your pharaohs you are at the same time preserving the collective as a whole exactly. um, and that was kind of what i mainly yes. wanted to go to whereas what christianity does mm -hmm. is it takes is takes this and reverses now it privatizes it Right. Yes, 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 exactly. So now you become solely responsible for your own salvation right? outside of any kind of collective. You have an interpersonal right. relationship with Christ and salvation. What's interesting is one of the things that... Uh, one and I guess the, the afterlife. One of the things that he... Yes, the afterlife, which is the end goal. One of the things that he doesn't connect, if he wanted to talk more about the schism of Protestantism from Catholicism. With Catholicism, the church can excommunicate you and say, you are not allowed the sacrament. You are not allowed a 
a priest whom you need. Christian burial, yeah. You're oh, you're not allowed a Christian burial. You're not allowed to re- repent because you need a priest to be a mediator. You are ejected from the collective body. Now, the reason why it still exemplifies Bojo's point about individual salvation is the fact that you still are judged individually in the Catholic point. Right. But with Protestantism, they say no. You don't need a church. Right. You don't need a priest as a mediator. You don't need these mediators. You have this, at least in the most radical forms of- You uh, have the word. of pro- Yeah. You have the ability to directly commute with, with God, and you have the ability to be responsible for your own salvation. There are obviously various sects of Protestantism that would want to cut into those flows and hierarchize them and, and get you back into a kind of collective body. But in the most radical sense, it does, Protestantism does go that far into the individual, right. which is why Weber writing about the spirit of capitalism, you know, we'll leave aside that. But yeah, I mean, Protestant work ethic. But I think that this is important for Bojer because he tries to show from this movement from the Pharaoh to how we treat afterlife in Christianity. It's the promise of a democratization where everyone can be allowed their own afterlife. And yet now it's no longer filtered through a despot. It's filtered through our own soul, which we have now interiorized. And so we've interiorized our own struggle with death and our own repression of death. And it all becomes individual and isolated. And it sounds very much like Anti-Oedipus, except here Bojar is talking about death with Anti-Oedipus, they're talking about desire. But I'll, I'll roll back. You wanted to say something. While you were talking, I kind of had this, you know, the phrase, the idle hands are the devil's workshop. I think this is like, at least spiritually, the kind of modus operandi of, of at least Protestant Southern Baptist, let's say, yeah. or evangelical theology, or at least like in the context of the Protestant work ethic, right? Mm-hmm. Idle yeah. hands are the devil's workshop. So... The idle hands of the dead, mm-hmm. the idle hands of the excluded, mm-hmm. right? Those that don't labor. Yeah. Those that don't produce value for the despot, let's say. Or, or the system or right, yeah. whatever. Whatever yeah. you want to, yeah. I think that the way I would look at it and extend it is also desire, like repression. You know, the way Freud talks about repression is the fact that in order for repression to work, consciousness has to repress let's just say spatially downward and the unconscious has to have a, a kind of a forepression or a counterpression and they have to meet together and, and, and meet and it both has there has to be extended forces both ways and it has to occur over and over you it's not like you just repress something once and then it's done for right. it's like no it's a constant expenditure to go back to your thing about bataille because to a certain extent it's useless even for freud he's like you know repression is kind of useless and economically if you unrepress you're able to free up more psychical energy and i think that so reich would pick pick up on that right I, I, or picks up on that. Yeah, I mean, because he's saying free the repression on sexuality, yes. and that's kind of. And this up. is why he's looking for the organ at a at a kind of subatomic level, free floating, unbound energy that constitutes the the basis of all life itself. I've said before, I kind of think of it as an admirable um, approach. And it's funny that like Reich's a kook, but Freud's just a pervert, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say the same thing with with um and Watery, where it's like. You know, desire is something similar to the psychical forces that allow repression to go on, where it's like, if desire is idling, there have to be zones of power that are keeping it inert and that are that are compressing it. 
in a way to keep it from bursting out and to keep it from flowing. And so that's how I understand kind of, you know, postmodern materialist way, this notion of idle hands, idle forces are the devil's workshop that, it, that at some point the inertia can't hold. Trying to keep active forces idle, they're going to find an outlet. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs relative to this is about the exchange of death in the primitive order. Savages have no biological concept of death, or rather the biological fact that is death, birth, or disease, everything that comes from nature and that we accord the privilege of necessity and objectivity quite simply has no meaning for them. This is absolute disorder since it cannot be symbolically exchanged, and what cannot be symbolically exchanged constitutes a mortal danger for the group. They are unreconciled, unexpiated, sorcerous and hostile forces that prowl around the soul and the body, that stalk the living and the dead, defunct cosmic energies that the group was unable to bring under control through exchange. We have desocialized death by overturning bioanthropological laws, by according it the immunity of science, and by making it autonomous as individual fatality. But the physical materiality of death, which paralyzes us through the objective credence we give it, does not stop the primitives. They have never naturalized death. And then there's actually, I'm going to go ahead and read a short section from the footnote. It's, for us, by contrast, everything which is symbolically exchanged constitutes a mortal danger for the dominant order. Do you think this has any resonance with what Deleuze and Guattari are trying to talk about relative to, I guess, warding off the state or warding off capitalism or warding off the flows that they cannot control because it kind of seems like that even though he's not exactly using the same yeah. language right yeah when i read this chapter there was a movie that i kept thinking of and this might be silly but there's a movie called slc punk salt lake okay. city punk yeah yeah i've not seen it but I've, i know well it, yeah. just it's to, like matthew lillard's in it right yeah matthew okay. lillard's in it um the idea being what I was trying to think about how what Baudrillard was getting me to try to, I'm not going to say dialectize because he doesn't yeah. like that word either. You know, the postmodern Frenchies don't really, after World War II, Hegel isn't really in favor. It's this notion where the interplay, the interaction is between, not between death and life, which is what he's making it out to be, but between chaos and order. And I'm wondering if... Which we, would sort of map onto i mean this is very general but like life life drive death drive yeah sort of eros and thanatos i mean you know we there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between order and life as we know because individuation is a thing it involves metastable equilibriums and yada 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 and chaos itself isn't necessarily you know hostile to isn't necessarily death Right there. But it does seem that if we think about it in terms of the listen watchery, in terms of the different machines, at least the, you know, leaving out the axiomatic of capitalism for the moment, the notion of primitive inscription and then despotic overcoding, and they both fear decoded flows. What for them would be their death would be the chaos of decoded flows. The chaos of a flow that would resist their coding or that would slip under their coding. They say something like, like 
better that all the organs be crushed than than any flow to escape the overcoating of the despot or you know that that the what the coding process of the territorial sociosphere is most is sort of the onslaught of of decoded flows and this is why capitalism haunts them as their as their negative and i'm wondering if what baudrillard is displacing from chaos and order to life and death is the modern mode of science, biology, technology, and psychology. And so I'm wondering if what the primitives, what these ancient societies, these classless societies, these societies against the state, whatever, what they are also warding off, if they're not warding off death, as Baudrillard is saying, because he's saying, no, they have a perfectly coherent way of symbolically exchanging with death and the dead, is it not what they are warding off in order for there to be a possibility of consistency itself in the coding process is chaos, is a form of chaos that would threaten them. And that the chaos that threatens them is the axiomatic of decoded flows whereby all flows can become abstractly equivalent through the abstract flows of money. And that's why they have to cordon off the merchant they have to cordon off the blacksmith with their own technological flows, which is why metallurgy becomes very important in A Thousand Plateaus. But leaving that aside, I mean, I think that's what perhaps ties in and undergirds and in fact is a subtext for what Baudrillard is trying to describe when he says we move from this moment where symbolic exchange allows for science to retain a certain ambivalence to the abstract general equivalence that we have today because of capitalistic flows of money, etc. And that's the dialectic at the heart of SLC Punk is this kind of, you know, even if it's done in this psychedelic way of this dialectic between chaos and order, as you know, that's a kind of conversation that can go on endlessly. It's like, well, of course, the order of life needs actually is not like order and life are not equivalent, but life needs a certain chaos, a certain metastable equilibrium from which to, to be able to individuate and from which to draw upon potentials from the unindividuated pre-individual milieu. Blah, blah. That gets us kind of outside of the field of what Baudrillard is describing for us. And so that's what I kept coming back to where it's like when he keeps talking about death, I'm wondering like, isn't he also kind of talking about the virtual as Deleuze talks about? Isn't he also kind of drawing upon these notions of potential potentiality inherent in chaos in Guattari's chaosophy that's kind of the springboard off his text that was the repressed of Baudrillard's text that I was indicating that I was feeling doesn't necessarily render moot everything he said but those are just my my kind of general reactions I have another quote the unconscious is social in the sense that it is made up of all that could not be exchanged socially or symbolically and so it is with death, it is exchanged in any case, and at best, it will be exchanged in accordance with the social ritual, as with the primitives. At worst, it will be redeemed by an individual labor of mourning. The unconscious is subject in its entirety to the distortion of the death of a symbolic process, exchange, ritual, into an economic process, redemption, labor, debt, individual. This entails a considerable difference in enjoyment. We trade with our dead a kind of melancholy, while the primitives live with their dead under the auspices of the ritual and the feast. So the prior passage was talking about 
symbolic in exchange, right? And this is saying the unconscious is social in the sense it is made up of all that could not be exchanged socially or symbolically. Right. My, just a, as a footnote to what you just said, there's a quote on 153 where he says, the symbolic is neither a concept, an agency, a category, nor a structure, but an act of exchange and a social relation which puts an end to the real, which resolves the real and at the same time puts an end to the opposition between the real and the imaginary. Oh, yeah. And, That's a good quote. And without relying upon Lacan, obviously, who is someone he's, if not arguing with, then... Uh, readjusting this right. notion of the symbolic puts an end between the conflict the opposition between the real and the imaginary i'm wondering about if this is not the root of why he had a distaste for the matrix because the matrix tries to show how the real and the imaginary are actually the the means through which one puts an end to the symbolic or renders the symbolic coherent insofar as the ones and zeros on the screen, it requires this unprecedented emergence of the one in order to render the symbolic movement of the numbers to be moved. Or the one as in Neo? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. just wanted to clarify, rather than... No, not, 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 no just within the movie, because <laughs> he's called the one, but Neo is, right, an I anagram, think, yeah. is an anagram, yeah. Right. And what I mean by that is that his point is actually the opposite right that the symbolic is what puts it in to to the conflict between the real and the imaginary and he does kind of admit later in interviews that like yeah maybe the symbolic's not the, the right term for it right he might have given up on the polemic or the disagreement with lacan because you know it's kind of arbitrary his notion of symbolic exchange seems to be the key to not falling further into what he's diagnosing modern culture with, which is this endless play of simulacra, that the real and the imaginary become thrust to one side. You know, if you think about it, this is what Leclerc was, was accusing Deleuze and Guattari of doing. They were trying to, for him, put the symbolic on one side and the real and imaginary on the other. And I think that's actually more accurate for what Baudrillard is trying to do. Because for Deleuze and Guattari, they're trying to cordon off the, the imaginary and the symbolic as means of structuring Oedipus and the real is what is desiring production, right? Is the unity of social production and desiring production or however other many formulas they have for it. So I am not certain if I agree either with his definition of what the symbolic is supposed to be doing, but if I read him charitably and... I would just say that he is looking for a way of describing collective bonds, collective resonances, what Simon Dome might call trans-individuation, something that he feels we have lost. And there's if there's no nostalgia and we can only kind of turn our back to the, the past and, and move forward, or if we only turn back to the past to like learn from it and try to change course direction, there is still no positive program for what to do to reinstate the symbolic. But with the caveat of saying he's showing us what happened or trying, because he says he's trying to provide a genealogy in a certain sense of, he's trying to kind of say like, how do we fuck things up so much? Which is why I think he does feel so negative or nihilistic, but he's, you know, if he doesn't provide yet, because we'll see in the last chapter if he does, 
a positive program for reinstalling the symbolic. He is trying to say what we did to derail it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like a cautionary tale. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, this I have a passage to this might actually help a bit. Because they were effectively ignorant of this law and the structure of repression and the unconscious which it entails, we were able to say that primitive societies were psychotic societies. Of course, this is our fierce way of abandoning them to their gentle madness. If not to see as begins to happen in the psychoanalytic West itself, whether psychosis might not conceal a more radical meaning, a more radical symbolicity than we have ever glimpsed under the sign of psychoanalysis. Yes, these societies have access to the symbolic, no, they do not gain access to the symbolic by means of the intercession of an immutable law. The image of which is sketched in the social order itself, the father, the chief, the signifier, and power. The symbolic is not an agency here, so that access to it would be regulated by the mediation of a phallus, an uppercase figure to embody all the metonymic figures of the law. The symbolic is precisely the cycle of exchanges, the cycle of giving and returning, an order born of the very reversibility which escapes the double jurisdiction, the repressed psychical agency, and the transcendent social instance. See, he does talk some shit about desire in this chapter, which we don't have really enough time to unpack. But here he sounds very, <laughs> he sounds a lot closer to the Lozenguatari, and he seems to be on their side fighting against Lacan. And Lacan's notion of the symbolic as wedded to the law right or yeah, really the father, yeah. desire and the law are wedded, are wedded together through the symbolic right and yeah, you know yeah, okay he seems to be approaching this from his own angle approaching this way of i mean you, you had some key points in there about this this metonymic movement that is established through master signifier phallus name of the father all these things for him that has nothing to do with the symbolic that's our way of well, for Dillis and Guattari, that's the despotic way of erecting the symbolic, right? Of welding desire and the law together. And, okay. But Baudrillard is also trying to kind of formulate this attack on Lacan without, you know, using this ethnographic, ethnological framework and trying to say that, no, 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 this is, it's not about the big other with an O. It's not about culture writ large, whether it have a lack or not, that what... Lacan is kind of scaffolding over with his notion of the symbolic is precisely the collective, the circularity of the collective exchanges, which is something that he seems to be himself repressing or foreclosing or just forgetting, you know, in a Heideggerian sense of forgetting being. And I think that Baudrillard is trying to say with Deleuze and Guattari that he's trying to kind of outline a schizoanalysis. Now, he doesn't do it positively, but I think he is trying to detract from psychoanalysis in its way of ignoring or repressing ethnology. So so there's, there's very vibrant resonances with the passages you just read to that whole endeavor in chapter three of Anti-Oedipus of right. doing this, because they do their own genealogy. They're doing this genealogy of, of social machines and its relation yeah. to desire. Okay. And Baudrillard's trying to look at a genealogy of death in the contradistinctions of modern culture, our culture versus how death has evolved throughout the history that we know of. Does that make sense? Yeah. Was there another point in the, I, cause that was a really beautiful yeah, was passage. A yeah. Was there, was there any other points you want to, or any other threads you want to elicit out of that? I, I don't think I got everything. Let me read you the, 
real quick while this is on top of my head, yeah. I thought the footnote for this Good. was great. Footnote number 14 for reference. Okay, go ahead. Because the social itself does not exist in primitive societies, the term primitive has been eliminated today, but we must also eliminate the equally ethnocentric term society. Mm -hmm. So we, in fact, do not live <laughs> in a society. Well, or... <laughs> So if, it, you know, and Leotar pushed him on this, we, there are no primitive societies, as we've discussed many times in our reading of libidinal economy, you know, the Lizanguatari used the term savage and primitive because that was current in ethnographic sociological descriptions. Here he's kind of saying like, well, if we've gotten to this point where primitive has become a problematic term, and I think it is. I mean, you could look at Claster in Society Against the State when he is targeting a word like archaic and trying to unpack it and deconstruct it and say like, you know, archaic, if it's if it means society by the history, that's not true. Right. If it means a subsistence society and that's a negative definition, that's also not true because they, they create their own surpluses, but they're not surpluses that are that are about accumulation for its own sake. Then we if we give up primitive, we also have to give up society and social. That that phrase primitive society would be a double negation would be <laughs> would be doubly empty. Yeah, and so I think he here we can kind of see that he he probably must have seen what Leotard wrote or heard about it because that th this does seem to be a direct things like well okay you take away primitive for me I take away then <laughs> then I see how society also becomes hollow. This becomes interesting because then that puts another form of pressure on Dillis and Guattari when they say the word socius. For them, when they talk about the primitive territory machine, the despotic overcoding machine, you know, they are talking about the socius, even though they do use words like society. So, you know, this is why it becomes interesting because it's like if the socius is a machine that, say, codes, overcodes, or is involved with the process of decoding, then society would just be a kind of more general notion of the relation of individuals, not only between each other, but among each other in a trans individual way, as Simon Dunn says, right? Like in a more resonant way. And I think that Baudrillard's kind of saying like, that's just an imaginary relation. And so it's, it's not, at least as far as he's concerned, we have to be more concrete with our terms if we're going to describe what symbolic exchange is. And that goes against Baudrillard too, because symbolic exchange itself is not necessarily concrete enough. Right. By itself. And could, you know, perhaps there is a better term for it. And he himself acknowledged it, but he's trying to at least show how symbolic exchange fades out or becomes obsolete or becomes, if not impossible, then it's like this repressed, like, like desire. Right. Repressed, but not fully eliminated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's it's sort of been co overcoded in its own fashion. Perhaps you would say like that would maybe be the way to, describe the halloween candy situation yeah right because it does involve it's sort of a useless expenditure but it's also right the, the purchasing of the candy except i think you know if you're looking at i think the amount of money spent per holiday i think halloween comes in second to, that's to christmas that's interesting you have to think about the expense of not only the candy relatively cheap but costuming and i think it feels like and decorations feel right too true. Mm -hmm. It feels like costuming, particularly for adults, has become yeah more day like wouldn't become more acceptable right 
This reminds me of some of the discourses, and I've heard it from stand-up comedians too, about Valentine's Day being a, a horrible holiday. Right, it's not, yeah. I mean, holiday in the general sense of the fact that on the one hand, it sort of boosts Hallmark sales and candy sales and rose sales. Restaurants, to, yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, and it circumscribes romance for one day of the year or one of the few days of the year right. where it's allowed to be effusive with those erotic emotions. But on the other hand, it also serves to really alienate even further. I don't even know that's the good word for it. Let's not use alienate in this Marxist sense. A strange depress, you know, immiserate single individuals or make them feel guilty for not having right. someone with whom to exchange romantic gestures. And as kids, we were more or less kind of like everyone gets a participation right. trophy. We everyone were more or less, a everyone gets a candy gram. Everyone gets, you know, a little card with a some candy on it, you know, and that kind of, let's just say utopia or idealism, you know, very quickly as we age, we wean off of that and, and realize, you know, it's supposed to be. See, this is yeah. uh, this is where like I, oh, you know, the discourse about the, the participation trophies I've always thought was kind of bullshit because it doesn't, all it does is sort of, it's still the floor, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's still the floor. It's like, I, I don't give a fuck about a participation, participation trophy. trophy. I also don't give a fuck about the fact that everyone gets the fact that everyone got the participation trophy or the fact that everyone gets the... That's every, not what you play for. Everyone else's Valentine's Day card yeah. sort of misses the whole... I don't know. Yeah, I agree with that. I totally the agree individual, with that. individual, at least, component of that. But I don't know. You know what I mean? That's kind of like within, I think, the capitalist no, it subjectivity, is. right? Because participation trophy or being, being against it, as you and I know, because we competed as athletes and we've been successful... I, in our earlier age, we're not talking about fucking professional. You know, we played to win. Right. And the trophies we earned are not participation trophies. You can tell what they are. I've gotten them before in my very youngest years. And and those are tokens. Those aren't really even trophies. So th this this discourse about, well, oh, they're coddled because they get a participation trophy. It's like, no, that's, that's just a hyper-individualist way of looking at it. Because even though you and I competed, we also competed on teams. And that's the important thing, right? When you win as a team, you know, you get trophies. Sure, there might be like MVP and stuff. But when you win as a team and you succeed as a team and you win your division or, or whatever it is, that's not something you did alone. You contributed, but there don't even have to be MVPs. You know that you did your best. Um, and I think that's all that participation trophies dole out, you know, and, and, and it doesn't diminish. It actually kind of enhances to a certain extent, you know, when you actually get like a, a legit trophy. Right. So you can kind of look at it with glass half full, glass half empty. But I think that if you're against participation trophies and think of that as a kind of coddling, I think that that is a kind of projection of the fact that you think people win in isolation and they don't. And that actually shows that you you didn't have the makings of a varsity athlete. <laughs> um, but going back to this passage, the so for me the key phrase or that I wanted to dig into was really the last sentence and I'll okay I'll re yeah reread re re it. it for you the symbolic is precisely the cycle of exchanges the cycle of giving and returning mm. an order born of the very reversibility which escapes the double jurisdiction 
the repressed psychical agency and the transcendent social instance. Mm. Read it one more time. The symbolic is precisely the cycle of exchanges, the cycle of giving and returning, an order born of the very reversibility which escapes the double jurisdiction, the repressed psychical agency and the transcendent social instance. I think I can try to talk about this just very quickly in Deleuze and Guattari terms, just to translate it. In chapter two, they go a long way trying to understand and they still are thinking of it in chapter three and they'll still talk about it in chapter four. They're trying to understand how it is that social repression and psychical repression can collude and can reinforce one another. And their main point is that social repression would have no hold on the individual psyche without, without these big entities like the ego, like the family, like the global persons, right? That if symbolic exchange in its, what, cycle of reversibility? Yeah. It eludes the double bind of the repressed psyche on the one hand, which is psychical repression, but psychical repression doesn't exist alone. It needs the transcendent social instance. It needs social repression on the other hand, because kind of like what I said about Freud's own model of repression, where what is repressed requires a part of the preconscious and a part of the unconscious at loggerheads pushing up and down at the same time. And I think that's kind of how Deleuze and Guattari try to lay out psychical oppression and social oppression, and they try to painstakingly understand how it evolves with the privatization of the organs. And then, and we lead up to the modern European nuclear family with Freud. And this is why he settles upon Oedipus with mommy, daddy, me is the triangular, the most important territory, right? This territoriality for social oppression to be able to, the most stable form for social repression to to invest because it reproduces it ensures its own reproduction through the family does that make sense That's yeah a, yeah absolutely yeah social reproduction and i think that what what Baudrillard is trying to say symbolic exchange would be that which eludes that escapes that unties that double bind eludes that and this is why i think when he says symbolic exchange he's fucking talking about desiring production desiring production in its molecular aspects in its aspects of well, we could say in its liberatory aspects, which he makes fun of in terms of the liberation of desire. He's talking about the, you know, he's, he's talking about the non-paralogistic uses of the syntheses. You know, he's talking about, you know, the inclusive disjunctions. He's talking about the non-segregative conjunctions. I don't want to try to reduce Baudrillard to right. D and G, but, but I think it took me a second to think like, you know, they're, they're not so incompatible. Every author, especially these three, we see that they have these tensions where they are trying to deal with an anxiety of influence. Leotard obviously was dealing with his own anxiety of influence, a little bit with Deleuze and Guattari, but more so in liberal economy with Baudrillard, you know, Baudrillard's earlier work. And Baudrillard does seem to be taking more pot shots at Deleuze and Guattari. I'm actually surprised he didn't try to slap back at Leotard besides that little footnote you read, which again is like subtweeting or some shit, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. It's, it's subtext. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know what symbolic exchange would be in terms of Leotard. This is what becomes more difficult because, you know, I actually think Leotard is the more psychotic of 
these three assemblages. Certainly, yeah. He's the most deranged, at least. Deranged is a, <laughs> is a better word, I think. It's a more am ambiguous word. It's a more. But there was, but the passage you read uh, a little while ago about the psychotic kind of eluding psychoanalysis, I think that that's true. And we have to understand that in Freudian terms, psychosis encompasses schizophrenia, right? And um, that's possibly why Baudrillard and his understanding of symbolic exchange and, and death can give some more concrete backing to why they call schizophrenia this positive process, why Dulles and Guattari call that, and why Guattari, in working with psychotics, tried to establish an institutional analysis based on transversality. Because if transversality is anything, as we've come to understand it, it does seem to be trying to instigate and influence and foment symbolic exchange amongst small groups amongst these collectives okay i like that that's good does that make any sense yeah 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 i'm following totally and i guess the one word that i don't think bojard has said in the whole book is transference right what is symbolic exchange <laughs> without a modicum of transference i don't know i know bojard he discusses psychoanalysis when he wants to he picks up concepts from psychoanalysis who he wants to, but I really do think perhaps transference and de-Freudianizing it or de-individualizing it like Guattari tries to do with transversality. And this, I think transference could be a key point in understanding if we exclude the dead and the death and the ancestor worship and all this stuff. I mean, I do think that there's a sense in which primitives, by not excluding death, by continuing to commune with the dead, they continue to allow for these channels of transference, right? And what does that mean? I mean, it, even most talks about, as we've said, talks about giving the gift, that the gift given is the gift itself is inhabited by these intense spirits that foment the, the need to exchange. Right. And... That means that there's this charge, this imperceptible charge and potential of transference that isn't necessarily one-to-one, -one, but that, that, that involves others with small o, right? Like the collective. I think that could perhaps wrap us up aside from, there's a couple of little threads and I'll, yeah. I'll throw these up to you and see what you think. It's yeah. like, I wanted to see, Speed round. do you think that the double is worth bringing up? He tries to make this thing where I don't know if it does. Where, where the double for the primitive is treated as worthy of inclusion, whereas for modern man, the double, the shadow is excluded, but then it comes back like a return of the repressed, right? And invests evil with a capital E. I think that the double, the way he works it out, is another way of um, him using as he always does, the primitive as the positive example versus the modern as the negative example. And it's the primitive who has an inclusive disjunction. The modern has the exclusive disjunction. So I see it kind of as in a DNG way. He puts it in his own words, but you know, he's, what's next? What, what else do you have? Well, there's this interesting passage I want to read and see what you think. Profit may be an effect of capital, but it is never the fundamental law of the social order. Its fundamental law is the progressive control of life and death. Its objective is equally, therefore, to snatch death away from the radical difference in order to submit it to the law of equivalence. And the naivete of humanist thought, liberal or revolutionary, consists in not seeing that in its rejection of death is necessarily the same as that 
of the system. That is the rejection of something that escapes the law of value. It is only in this sense that death is an evil, but humanist thought turns it into an absolute evil, and it is from this point that it becomes enmeshed in the worst contradictions. Is this the section on the death penalty? Yeah, it is the death penalty section. Awesome. So profit may be an effect of capital, yeah, yeah, yeah. but is never the fundamental law of the social order. It's fundamental law is the progressive control of life and death. Okay, so profit's fundamental law is the progressive control of life and death. Well, no, it's pro profit may be an effect, but it is not the fundamental law of the social order. So the social order's fundamental law is the progressive control of life and death. Do you think that's ambiguous or not? That the it refers to. Uh, let me. Okay. So no. Okay. Okay. I think you might be right that the social order's fundamental law is yeah. the progressive control of life and death. Well, no, it could be either though because it could still be. It's saying profit is not the fundamental law of the social order. Right. So its fundamental law does that mean? I took it as social order. I, I I can lean towards that, but I, you can kind of see the ambiguity. Right, right. Okay, so it's fundamental. I'll take your reading. It's fundamental law. The social order's fundamental law is the progressive control of life and death. I think that makes more sense than profit controlling. Yeah, life. exactly. Its objective is equally, therefore, to snatch death away from radical difference in order to submit it to the law of equivalence. And the naivety of humanist thought, liberal or revolutionary, consists in... Not seeing that its rejection of death is necessarily the same as that of the system, that is, the rejection of something that escapes the law of value. It is only in this sense that death is an evil, because it is rejected as escaping the law of value. Is that... So humanist thought rejects death. The capitalist system rejects death. They both do it because death escapes the law of value. And this is what turns death into an evil. But and, thought, and so in that death, yeah, death can't provide us with a value anymore. It yeah, can't provide us with a surplus. Is that kind of what it's? Death is not a value. Death is not valuable. Death also, it's not just valuable. It's senseless. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's meaningless. Right. And this is why we have it's a lot. An exclu it's an exclusion. It's so, it's ghettoized. Yeah. Right. Right. It's radically excluded. And this is why we have all these movies about heroes dying for a cause and these other things because it retroactively kind of gives death a meaning or a purpose or and that we try to use death as a way of giving meaning and purpose retroactively back to a life which may have seemingly had no purpose. Think about um, fucking, um, God, it's such a horrible Christmas movie, but it's a wonderful life where he's like, Man, I fucking hate this shit. I'm going to kill myself. And then the angels are like, oh, look, look at how worse the world would be without you. Right. And and so that's and so meaning here is all semiological meaning like his, you know, anti-semiology included this notion of like signification to be drawn from a life. It's plugged back into the machine of value, the the that showing that a life had meaning also shows that had, had value that that's kind of a sort of equivalence yeah maybe okay. not a general equivalence but it's a sort of equivalence 
And I think that that's something that Baudrillard is also fighting against, right? Because he is fighting against the notion of use value and exchange value can be sign value and the sign value has replaced everything else. What we need is, is a symbolic value. That that's, that's the only thing that can counteract the structural law of value. And, um, and so death being valueless, once we have come to see that, like, death is abhorrent, it's evil, it's the worst thing, then it no longer has a value and then it has to be repressed. And this is why he talks about um, the machines to like continue living and, and takes away the freedom for someone to, to die on their own time that no, you're going to die on our time when we say so, right? You know, you will be vaccinated. Yeah, you will be vaccinated. You will be on kidney dialysis. You will be medically. I mean, think about the controversy with um, Terry Schiavo. Yeah, Terry Schiavo. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's very much in the same vein. Could be a very, you know, this. It's almost like the prisoner, right? At least back in the, and then he talks about this too. They would kill the prisoners of war. Eventually, that evolved into, into slavery, becoming slaves. So there's it was a more forced, profitable, right? There's a forced, a forced life, right? And and I think that that's the thing that in the old days, sacrifice, even Provided sacrifice of meaning, is, like, prestige, other kinds of value. I mean, if you think about it, what could be more prestigious than to be sacrificed to the gods? Like yeah. that is an honor, right? I mean, I feel like there's a movie where something like this occurs. Mm -hmm. and like, there's like an outsider element. It's kind of like well, a Midsummer is kind of like this. Perhaps, yeah. You've seen that, right? I haven't seen. It. Okay, <laughs> fuck that. I was the, thinking, of a, cut I'm that not, out. I can't remember what movie I'm thinking of. He has a similar passage about cannibalism, and that you didn't just eat any old fucking person. Whoever was eaten was like worthy of being eaten. Yeah. You didn't eat a reprobate or a you know a fucking someone you scorned. You actually honored the warrior you fought or the slave you took by cannibalizing them because you incorporate them by eating them. Right. This is why he talks, he links cannibalism to the oral drive and says the oral drive is first to be repressed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I think when Baudrillard ventures into psychoanalysis, he's much less interesting than when he stays on his own Semiotic, terrain of yeah. semiotics and on anthropology. Right. Um, but having said that, yeah, when death becomes absolute evil, which we kind of see with the development of, of Christianity, which we right. do see. I mean, I, I was quoting John Dunn to you the other day where, you know, death be not proud. You know, the sonnet yeah, ends yeah. with, oh, yeah. with death itself dies, right? When he, he kind of even, yeah, he, he almost even that. quotes it and, and pretty sure he does yeah. without, without quoting right, it, right. this notion of death dying and that being kind of the most ironic thing and that being the last turn in our, whether we call it our cynical reason or our naive reason, our postmodern reason, whatever, our post-structuralist reason, our post-mortem reason, right? This is the thing. We, he kind of is saying we are post-mortem. We are beyond death in a way that renders it infused in all of our, our cells, right? And, and all symbolically, such that we can't deal with it. I'm more convinced by this chapter than the <laughs> others. I'm just still not sure. So I'm still left. I'm trying to still keep an open mind. I, I found some things interesting. Something along those lines I felt inter thought was interesting was he talks about in the primitive societies that years can be accumulation of years so that, you know, the elderly have a certain wealth 
measured experience years, right. or yeah prestige that is obviously different in the way that we treat our elderly people by yeah we exclude them to the ghetto of the mm -hmm. care facility etc right rather than treat them as a group the way that it would be in the in the tribe so and the i know this wasn't widespread in every nursing home but we had some especially in florida and some other i think in new york and some some of these nursing homes with, since we're talking about covid where they became breeding grounds yeah for and that kind of reinforces this point that shows the devaluation of lives that are you know they are excluded because they are nearing death and that has to be excluded because it's outside the range of the normal, of the bell curve of the human that he right. starts the yeah, ch exactly. chapter with. Human exactly. with a capital H, right? They are approaching the realm of the inhuman with a capital I. And we see that the care we should have taken on them, you know, this is why they were ravaged with, even before COVID, though, they, were, they were these nursing homes ravaged with STDs, uh, plagues yeah. of SEDs, which right. shows that they are not yet dead. They are still fucking yeah. fucking. Desire they are still, is still... They are still pumping. Yeah, desiring production. Desiring production is still alive. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> systems online. You know, and uh, that you're right. That, that was a very poignant point he made. But again, I, I still kind of want to fucking like, be like, you're, yeah, there feels like there's a, it feels like it's almost worse than Russo, where he, he still feels like he's kind of romanticizing, saying like, oh, in the old days, the old people, they were, you know, respect your elders and all that shit. Because we we heard that all, all that shit growing up, right? Sure. Respect yeah. your elders, right? And, you know, like, honor thy father and thy mother. That's inscribed in the Judeo-Christian morality. So, you know, I don't know. I I get it. He's right on one hand, but on the other hand, he's. I'm just like, you know, come on, bro. I have one last thing to Let's say. Let's do it. And then I'll, we can close out. Yeah. So, I was just thinking about, I fucking forgot to mention this earlier, but I was thinking about how he opened the chapter with this discussion of modernity and mm -hmm. sort of creating the universal human subject. Yeah. Okay, so liberalism tries to say, okay, we created this, it tells itself. The conscious investment was, mm -hmm. okay, we're, we're creating this universal as a way to liberate. All men are created equal, et cetera. Yeah, rights of man. But it's what it really is, what it really is, is a way to divide. That's because man, while seemingly universal, is actually right. Creating... Now we can see these instances where humanity is not. I don't know. Because anything that's other, it's like, well, there's dehumanization. There's there's degrees of dehumanization going on. Right. It's almost like the kind of examples I was talking about yesterday with Kool Aid about how unconscious and conscious investments, right? Mm hmm. Because it's kind of like consciously unconscious investment. Yeah. Right. The unconscious investment is division or exclusion, otherization, reactionization. Yep. Yeah. While still professing this, oh, this is a universal, this is, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? All men, like you said, all Well, men it's very, people. but that's, that's a good example of the, I'm not going to say woke, but the performative virtue. Right, right. Where you're, you're saying the things it's not that about you what think it means. others want you to right. hear, want yeah. to hear from you. It's, True. Yeah, it's not about what yeah what it what it means. It's about what it does, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's uh, you know, that's it's not about what it signifies. Yeah, I think that that's very it's about its effects. That's that's very true. So this, so yeah, I mean this this notion that because Classer points out that you know if you take each society in the way that they celebrate their own culture, then yes, you can say every society is ethnocentric 
But that's a truism that really ethnocentrism in the sense that it takes on actual meaning is when we enter the very domain and realm that Baudrillard is laying out, which is that with the rise of the enlightenment and reason and, and I mean, this the discourses Foucault, of universality. Right. Yeah. Oh, totally. 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 Yeah. totally. The, yeah, the, to a certain extent, I mean, Foucault's doing a whole genealogy of, I'm not going to say humanity in like a molar sense, but like, you yeah. know, the genealogy of, of the conceptual yeah. identity of through modernity man right right? you know and then yeah that's that's definitely this is definitely where Foucault this is why he bookends this chapter with Foucault on both sides you know he first starts with oh death is excluded just like the madman was excluded in the asylum as Foucault says and then he ends the chapter with saying oh death is what made modern medicine possible as Foucault says and this is why the excluded is the sick man who you know, is excluded because we fear it almost it almost seems like he's saying we exclude the sick man because we fear symbolic exchange more than we fear death itself. He kind of seems to be gesturing towards saying the latter more than the former, that it's an alibi to repress death. The alibi is the fact that we are actually repressing symbolic exchange because we want capitalism to function based on general equivalence. We want the libertarian homilies about equality, blah, 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 to sleep better at night and not to face the reality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's only, well, it's to reinforce the censor, which as we know, only in dreams does it start to let its guard down. So maybe we're in there. Yeah, in our dreams. In our dreams. (laughs) A dream to some, a nightmare to others. That will wrap up this week's edition of the Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Peace. Signing up. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.